how is it that a single writer is able to capture uh, the attention and perhaps the hearts of our readers from so many different cultures and countries and languages. Yes. You know, that is extraordinary. And uh, we may never see it again. And it has something to do with this character that you mentioned, that, 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 that isolated, uh, struggling character yeah. that we can all relate yeah. to. Welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, men with no faces, bells ringing in the night, and lots of owls. This can only mean one thing Murakami is back. Haruki Murakami's new novel, Killing Commendatore, is published this week. And to celebrate, we've rolled out the black spotted carpet for two Murakami experts to join us in the studio. Jake Courage is a journalist who writes for a number of publications, uh, but perhaps most notably as The Telegraph's crime fiction critic. Uh, he's a self-professed fan of all things Murakami, and he is joined by Professor Ted Goosen, who translated Killing Commendatore from its original Japanese. Ted is a specialist in modern and contemporary Japanese literature and he has translated a number of Japanese authors as well as some well-loved Murakami titles uh, like Hear the Wind Song and Pinball. No one knows a book backwards and forwards like a translator so Ted is the perfect guest to talk about the new Murakami book uh, and without further ado I'm going to let you guys listen to Jake and Ted. Hello, welcome to the Vintage Podcast. My name's Jake Kerridge, and I am a Harukist, which is the nickname that's been given to those of us who are obsessive fans of Haruki Murakami. And there are a lot of us now around the world. Uh, Murakami is a serious experimental novelist whose books are regarded as literature with a capital L, and more than any other living author he's spoken of as a likely future winner of the Nobel Prize but he's also immensely popular. Uh, now those English-speaking readers who can't read Japanese can get their latest fix of Murakami, and at 700 pages it's a good strong dose, uh, as his most recent book, Killing Commodatory, has now been translated into English. And I wouldn't have it in my hand, or need two hands really to hold it, it's a big beast, uh, if it wasn't for the man sitting next to me. He's one of the many translators around the world who open up Murakami's strange, surreal world. To his fans. He's a professor in the Department of the Humanities at York University in Toronto and an expert in Asian culture, Ted Goosen. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. So, Ted, you're the co-translator of this new English version of Killing Commodatore. You've done that with Philip Gabriel. Uh, the book was published in Japan in February 2017, so that's well over 18 months ago. I don't know if you're one of those people who went to Tokyo and queued up for hours to get a copy when it first came out, but for British and American readers, we're already jealous of someone who could read Japanese and read the new Murakami as soon as it hits the shops. Uh, what were your first impressions of Killing Komatatori when you read it? Yeah, actually, I got to read it before uh, the Japanese oh, wow. public because they sent me a copy, wasn't quite finished, but just needed a, a little bit of touching up, a few changes were made, so they sent me that in a, in a galley form. Uh, two months, I believe, before the publication so that I could get a head start on it. Right, so you've been commissioned then to translate? Yes, yeah, Philip, Gabriel and myself both were approached uh, 
by uh, uh, Murakami's agent, and we worked together before. We did a collection of short stories called Men Without Women. And uh, so we were approached to do the novel together, and it's a rather novel idea to have two translators yeah. working on the same novel, but we talked together, we worked very well together, and decided, sure, why not? And we, we went after it. And did you, uh, were you in constant email contact with each other? Were you meeting up? I've never met Philip. Uh, Philip teaches in Arizona, right. and I live in in uh, Toronto, Canada. So we're we're separated by some distance, and for some reason, he and I have never bumped into each other. But we uh, we we are email friends, and we didn't communicate as often as one might expect. We weren't uh, emailing each other every day or anything like that. But we did from time to time exchange good-natured emails, and if there were issues, we were, we were working together with a, uh, a very good editor, Lexi Bloom, so uh, sometimes it was a triangular communication uh, with Lexi and Philip and me trying, mm -hmm. trying to figure out anything that needed to be, uh, uh, you know, calibrated to, to make it similar on both sides. And it was a harmonious relationship between the two? It was. It was very harmonious. And so what did you, when you first read it, uh, before anyone else had? Uh, in Japan, what did you think of it? I was intrigued by it. At first, I saw connections between it and The Great Gatsby. Sure, and, yeah. and I had I had translated Murakami's uh, uh, introduction to his translation of The Great Gatsby into Japanese. And it was a very interesting uh, essay that he wrote. And I knew how much he loves Gatsby and how he's constantly returned to Gatsby and was waiting for the day when he felt prepared to translate Gatsby and on and on and on like that. And so when I, I, I saw this kind of Gatsbyite situation uh, from the beginning, I thought, aha. But then as it went on, it became very different and uh, there are many connections that one could draw to other works, both uh, in the English language but also in, in, in classical Japanese. Sure, and it's uh, difficult for um, Anglophone readers, I'm sure, will recognize the parallels with The Great Gatsby, um, but it's often hard for us in England and America to work out where Murakami sits in Japanese literature. Is he a typical Japanese writer, or is he very different, and how is he regarded over there? When he started out uh, in his first works, uh, he was so atypical that many felt that it wasn't an appropriate form of literature. It, it smelled to them of translation and of uh, American culture. Mm -hmm. uh, since then, though, as his, that was already, uh, what, f 40 years ago. Yeah. And as he continued to write, his writing developed, and the style that he writes in became more and more um, natural uh, for his readers and for others. And today, I don't think that he is an outlier in, in, the, in the world of Japanese literature. But he's never been part of the establishment, quote-unquote. Yes. Uh, and he has his own followers, and he's had a profound influence on Japanese style. And it reminds me of Akira Kurosawa when he made uh, Rashomon, and, and that was also regarded, I think, by the Japanese government as not a film that Japan should be represented by. It was too Western, but it was the 
film that opened the floodgates for the interest in Japanese cinema. We talk about Rush Home. Yes, that was an interesting situation because it was really an Italian scout who had gone to Japan, had seen the film, and insisted that it be included in the Venice Film Festival. And um, it was the studio, the Japanese studio, that said, "Oh no, 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 no! You don't want that. That's made for Japanese audience. You wouldn't understand that. Let us make you a a kind of an export film." Yes. Uh, and uh, and and that 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 scout said, you know, no way. We we want that film. That's the one that is going to uh, uh, succeed, and we know it. Yes, and that's, yeah. the rest is history. It does seem that uh, the Japanese in general aren't too keen on on being represented worldwide by an author who is too Western in his approaches. That's an interesting question, and it ref it reflects, I think, a division within Japanese culture. Uh, for those who one might think of as being uh, uh, narrow, narrowly nationalistic, and those who are more eclectic, and and mm -hmm. and are, are acceptive of uh, a fusion and and hybridity, and uh, I would say the latter group has become more and more significant, and the former yeah. group is less and less uh, of a force. Mm. And as I understand it. Uh, the book that really made Murakami's name in Japan was Norwegian Wood, so he'd have been publishing novels for eight or ten years by then, and, and that was a huge hit with younger readers, uh, as far as I uh, have been told, uh, something that he wasn't necessarily that happy about, the idea of becoming a cult author. Is that the case? I think that it wasn't only Japan, of course. It was yeah. China and especially Korea. Okay. And uh, in those countries, Norwegian Wood was... Uh, not only a big bestseller, but was was constantly discussed among among the young. There, the packaging of it was very uh, creative. There was a red volume and a green volume, and it was considered appropriate in a, as for a couple, for one side of the couple to to, to give the other uh, this as a present. Okay. <laughs> and it dealt with romantic and sexual relationships. Yeah. So there was a, a kind of congruence there. Um, yes, it sold so many that his life was changed. Uh, he left Japan for a period of time and lived abroad, uh, partly as a result of that of that change. I think by the time he went back, he'd more or less made his peace with being famous and had figured out a way of, of dealing with it. Yes, and he's just got more and more famous as the years have gone by. That's right. Uh, when you read a novel by Murakami, it's tempting to play, I suppose you could call it Murakami bingo. There are so many tropes and symbols and quirks that recur over and over again in his books. And you could do a list of them. There's cats, uh, old records, ears, uh, wells, secret passages, parallel universes, and uh, we have to say weird sex <laughs> comes up quite a lot. Uh, and when you come across these things when you're reading, it's almost like you're meeting an old friend. It's comforting in a way for him to be going over this old ground again. Some feel that way, and some critics probably are, are, are uh, uh, wish that he not include some of those that you listed so often, but certainly his readership does enjoy, uh, and, and of course it's not predictable, there are no cats, I, this, is a, this is a spoiler alert, but there are no cats in <laughs> Killing Commendatore. Um, so, but you know, I, I translated his first two uh, novels, novellas really, one is Hear the Wind Sing, and that was his first, which he wrote when he was 30. And the second is Pinball 1973, which he wrote right. the f subsequent year, I believe. And uh, they aren't that well known. Uh, he didn't consider them to be fully realized novels. 
only recently did uh, I get the permission to go ahead and translate them. But translating them, I became aware that many of the uh, things that you mentioned, the tropes, are, are uh, there at least in uh, seed form in those first works. Yeah. And you can trace images and themes through all of his works from those first novels. So it's quite extraordinary, really, that, that a writer, I don't think he's the only one. I think other writers, some other writers are like that. They seem to have a full-fledged image of, 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 of their, their work, yes. uh, even when they're barely getting started. It's, it's in there. Yes. And then it comes out in this very organic way. And I, I think, yeah, I think that is one of the fascinating things about literature in general, and Murakami in particular. Yes, I think I agree when reading more and more of his work. It's almost like he's sort of excavating down into his mind and finding whatever's buried deep there rather than necessarily doing these things very deliberately on purpose. Yeah, I, I talked to him once about, about writing, uh, and he said something interesting. He said, you know, every morning uh, when I w go, because he works every day, uh, he's a very uh, scheduled mm, writer, okay. and he said every morning when I go to uh, write to my to my uh, desk. You know, it's uh, it may the sun may not even be up, but he's ready to go, and he's got his mug of coffee, and he's <laughs> and he's he's into it. Uh, he said, I, "I feel as though I'm descending into a pit." And then when I finish my writing for the day, and it's very again very programmed, so let's say four hours perhaps, and then I, I have to climb out of the pit. And he said, "That's the that's the difficulty. That's what you, one has to be careful of is to get out." Yes. All the way. And, and, and at that point, then he's able to perhaps have, have lunch, take a run. You know, he, he runs uh, yes. or exercises very, uh, very frequently. Uh, and then maybe uh, he'll, he'll do some translation in the afternoon to kind of cool down. He translates okay. American literature. Again, he's a prolific translator. Yes. Sure. If, if, if we stacked up his writing next to his translations, uh, they would probably both be, they'd be quite a stack really? at this yes. point, but they would be of equivalent heights. And that, that's mostly American-English uh, classics? Yes. Yeah. yes. The Killing Commentatore is uh, narrated by a typical Murakami protagonist. Uh, we don't know his name, but he's 36 years old, which is often an age that has significance in Murakami's work. Uh, like many of his narrators in other novels, he's at a crossroads in his life. He's a fairly passive figure who is quite fatalistic, and that's fate. Uh, take him where it will and at the beginning of the novel his wife leaves him and he ends up going on a road trip and uh, winds up living at this magnificent villa in the mountains in eastern Japan that uh, used to belong to a painter who's got dementia. Uh, the narrator is himself a painter and one night he makes a surprising discovery in the attic. Uh, it's a magnificent picture. Could you just tell us a little bit about what the picture is? It's where the title of the book comes from. Yes, it's, it's a scene from uh, Don Giovanni and uh, in it, uh, a, an older man, uh, who is the commendatore, uh, is being slain by a younger man while uh, a, uh, a beautiful young woman gasps in horror and a servant is in shock. And then a very strange figure, not in Don Giovanni, has poked his head up from a strange hole in, in, in the corner of the canvas and is watching what is going on. Yes, and this uh, painting is going to play a very important and slightly surreal role in the plot, and the novel gets more and more surreal as it goes on. Um, do you think, uh, because it's a Japanese painting of a uh, scene from a Western opera, do you think Murakami is in a way addressing the tensions between 
Western influences and Japanese influences in his own work. It's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of that, but it's an interesting idea. It's it's from uh, the clothing of the characters is from the Asoka period, which is very old. I think it's around 600 AD. So it's what the painter imagined, at least, to be uh, the the attire of the people uh, from that era. So even though it's a scene from a Western opera, it is visually, at least, part of ancient Japanese yeah. culture. So, it's, yeah, that is a very interesting kind of juxtaposition. I'm not quite sure. It could be, as you say, that it's a, a, a foregrounding of a cultural uh, clash, or at least a cultural range, yeah. ranging from the, the ancient to the modern, from Japan to the West. Well, one of the things about these books is they have huge cultural range, um, especially uh, not just East and West, but also music is, is as much of an influence on his books as literature, it seems to me, both uh, classical and pop and jazz. Yeah. I mean, he started out, as, as everyone knows, as a, the owner of a, of a small jazz bar, and he and his wife uh, ran that for about a decade. Yeah. And he acquired a tremendous knowledge of jazz, and since he's expanded to classical music, and uh, yeah, his, his musical range is also very, very broad. Could you tell us a bit about how you first became interested in Japan and how you became a translator? It was somewhat accidental, my, okay. first, my, my first trip to Japan. I was only 19 years old. I found out that my, my university had an exchange program. I stumbled over uh, to where they were doing the interviewing. They were leaving, the interviewers were leaving the room when I arrived, and they looked at me and they said, okay, we'll do one more interview, and they unlocked the door, and we went in and did the interview, and then I was accepted, to my surprise, because I wasn't a very good student, and, uh, and went to Japan for a year. Interestingly, I arrived on campus, on the campus of Waseda University, in the summer of 1968, and Murakami arrived at the same campus as a first-year student, in the spring of 1968. Okay. So we were there on the same campus yes. at the same time at a very dramatic period in Japanese sure. history. 1968-69, lots of demonstrations. In fact, our campus was closed at the uh, in March of the uh, the fall of the next year, and uh, and I, I left and hitchhiked down. Uh, to to to, uh, to the south, southern part of Japan and then to Okinawa and Taiwan and to Hong Kong, where I met my wife. So it was yes. quite an eventful, uh, quite an eventful uh, a year for yes. me. And it was for him too. I think perhaps some of the first connections I felt when I read his stuff had to do with that overlapping of our of our own personal histories. Yes. So you're almost exactly the same age then. Yes. And I, I don't suppose you, I presumably you could have met him then, back then and or. We probably, you know, he may have looked at me and thought, what a weird-looking foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. He, he would have no memory of that. And it was just coincidence that we were on the same yes. campus. Yeah. And he has revisited uh, that time, as you say, a very um, turbulent time in student politics yes. in Japan at the, yes. at the end of the 60s. And, and, and it paralleled uh, what happened in uh, America, sure. where I lived at yeah. the time, before I moved to Canada. Uh, after three or four years after that, both in Japan and in America, the leftist movements were uh, brought into disrepute. In Japan's case, by the purging of the Red Army, 
Uh, they purged their own members, killed their own members. And this, this was the most radical left-wing organization in, in, in uh, student organization in the United States. It was the Weathermen. It was the left wing of the of the protest movement in the United States that, sure. that bombed a post office and killed somebody and did other things that made people think those guys have lost it and um, I, I can't back them, support them anymore. So in both cases, the in a sense, the the, the student. Uh, movement that we witnessed at least and participated in perhaps to some extent imploded uh, in the immediate aftermath. Yes. Um, can you talk about the uh, process of translation a bit? Uh, do you have to read the book a couple of times before you start or maybe read yes, it once? Yes, or? yes, yes. The first time I read it, I read it uh, fairly quickly yeah. and I'm just excited about where the novel is going, you know, if if I don't get excited about it, then I usually don't translate it. Okay. Um, and then second time I read it, if I if I know I'm going to translate it, then I'm beginning to take notes and look up some words. And then the third time would be the time when I do the first draft, and then I'm looking up every word that I don't. Not only words that I don't know, but words I just want to to look at, think about a little bit more. You know, many words have, if you're looking at a dictionary, they have five or six potential meanings. And and usually um, that's because in, Jap in, in Japanese, the, the concept or the, uh, the emotion is not directly translatable. You're, you're yeah. trying to imagine a, a broader, a, a broader category, one mm -hmm. that doesn't fit your own English category. So, so that, that reading is, is, is slow and, uh, and it's fun. <laughs> and uh, uh, you've translated a lot of Japanese fiction by other authors. Uh, and where does Murakami uh, sit in terms of being easy or hard to translate? Is he more idiosyncratic than some of the other authors you've translated or is he um, easier to get a handle on? It's very deceptive. You know, okay. sometimes people read Murakami and they think, well, he, he must be very easy uh, to translate because there is something about his literature that does uh, seem uh, to be close to what we might find among some English language writers. Sure. However, uh, it's deceptive because when you try to do it and you're trying to achieve, of course, as a translator, you're trying to, to, to uh, bring out in your readers the, the emotions and, and ideas and, and responses that you had when you read it in the in the original, and uh, so that is uh, always complicated. It doesn't yeah. necessarily help if there's something uh, that seems on the surface to be somehow similar. Uh, to use a, a, the exact opposite, uh, in in a, in a writer like Mishima, uh, Mishima uses lots of difficult words. Yeah. Lots of it's it's like reading uh, you know the Oxford uh, Oxford Dictionary, um, you know the hard parts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and but when you've looked them all up and you've you've written in what each one means, it goes surprisingly quickly. Yeah. Because there's actually in Mishima's case relatively little nuance. Right. He's a he's a descriptive writer. He tells you exactly what he wants you to know. Whereas in in Murakami's case, it's evocative. It's often, as you mentioned, surreal, and, uh, and 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 that ambiguity is really part of what makes him such a great writer. Yeah, and the other hard thing, I mean, you say you want to make the reader feel as uh, you felt when you read it in Japanese, but uh, you know a lot about Japanese culture. There will be 
concepts, philosophical ideas, also just uh, things that people do day to day that the Western reader, for example, won't know anything about. Um, and is this something you have to be conscious of when you're translating? To an extent, but uh, I have a friend, uh, his name is Royal Tyler, and he's mm. a brilliant translator of classical literature, and he translated The Tale of Genji. Yeah. And I talked to him when he was doing it, in the process of doing it, and he said, you know, the mistake that other translators have made when they translate Genji is because it's so old, it's a thousand years old, yeah. and it's written by a court lady who lived in a completely different environment than we do. He said people tend to think that there's somehow something ambiguous or, 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 or uh, uh, that's not the right word, misty and, and, and things that are obscured. And that, and that he said, they're kidding themselves. He said the readers of her knew exactly what she was talking about. Yeah. There was nothing indistinctive about it. And he said, that's the way I'm going to translate it. And that's the way he did. Yeah. So, so in, in a way, all human beings are dealing with similar issues. Sure, yes. Right? And so... Uh, even though there may be cultural differences, those will come come across, I yes. think. Uh, you, you don't have to be swayed. There's certain words that you may need to to rethink, reformulate, yeah. so that people understand what this situation means for someone, for example, who is looking at uh, people who are senior to them and junior to them in, in different ways, or yeah. you know, institutional structures and so forth may be so, so slightly different. But the human side of it, you know, the, 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 the human reality yeah. is something that can be translated because we're all, in that sense, uh, uh, bound together yes. uh, at the skin. And when you talk uh, about that, it sounds very much then uh, like a creative process, really. Um, yeah. You're thinking as an artist as much as a translator when you're doing it? The two things are different and yet they are, are somehow similar. Um, I think translation, I, I admire Murakami's stamina. Uh, I think it's very difficult. I've tried writing and I know how difficult it is uh, to keep dredging things up from within. Yes. Um, in, in the case of the translator who is afforded that 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 view, right, to, to, of course you're connecting to it, but you're not risking uh, your, your inner self in the same sure. way that a, that a writer is. So it's less emotionally exhausting. Uh, it's, I think it's probably fun in both cases, but the, the, the uh, I think there, there are very few downsides to being a translator, especially when you're tra translating someone uh, as, as good as Murakami. There are probably more downsides to being a writer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, see, you seem very happy <laughs> with, with your chosen career path. Uh, what about, uh, as a translator, trying to get across the rhythm of the language? Is that something you think about carefully? It's absolutely crucial. And, and, and that's... You have to have that in mind. Well, not in mind, perhaps, but, but you, you have to be in a flow. So the, the level of concentration when you're translating is, is, is quite something. I mean, you, you, you get into, into the language. The, the, the original has a certain kind of flow, and, of course, the languages are so different. It's not like, uh, you know, if you're translating Garcia Lorca, I don't, know, I don't know Spanish, but if you're translating Lorca into English, there is something similar about the flow of Spanish and the flow of English. Okay. There's more that can be, that, that can be drawn from uh, for the English translator, that, that he, can, 
he can see something, right? Uh, parallel at least. Whereas in Japanese, that's not quite true. So you're you're you have to come up with that rhythm. But when you've read the novel several times, and especially when you know a writer uh, very well, you 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 do get into that rhythm naturally, just when you're reading the book, and then you're trying to recapture that or capture that when you are uh, when you're doing the translation. So you do the best you can the first time through, but you know. There are many drafts in the making of a, of a translation. Uh, I'm, I benefit tremendously from uh, Motoyuki Shibata, and Motoyuki Shibata is a remarkable translator in his own right, and he helps Murakami with his translations uh, from American literature, and Murakami has called him his, his teacher and his coach, okay. and he's playing the same role with me, so I'm tremendously fortunate to get feedback from him, and then, uh, and then, uh, based on that feedback, I can then go on to the next. Uh, I, I think I said in the second or third draft, and then I'll do the fourth draft, and then I may have someone else look at it for the uh, for the final draft, and then of course it goes to the publisher, and, yeah. the, and the editor reads it and, and begins marking on it and, and asking questions. And then in the case when you're working with another translator, that adds another layer, yes. right? Because he may, uh, for example, Philip Gabriel um, used the word however much more often than though, and I used the okay. word though much more <laughs> often than however, and a, and a very sharp-eyed uh, assistant editor at, uh, at uh, Knopf saw that and said, well, this has to be fixed, and so we had to go back in and, and, and yeah. level that out. And uh, so there is—it's good to know there are such committed editors. <laughs> <laughs> really, and and so the uh, the whole process is very yeah. uh, lengthy. And throughout, you're looking at the rhythm. Yeah, right. That, that's the one thing that you, when you're reading it and rereading it and rereading it and working on it, that's the one thing that that you you you, you have to keep in mind, and. Uh, uh, that and the voice. You know, each character has a different voice. Yes. The narrative has a voice. Um, yes. The narrator has a voice. So you have these different voices too, which are distinguishable, and you, you're also working on those to so that they're coherent, and and that they're not. Everybody doesn't have the same voice. They have to have yeah. their own distinctive, right? We have we have talking yeah. and thinking. In this case, because we both work with Motoyuki Shibata. Right? I have, a, in a sense, um, uh, the ability to rely heavily on, on Moto, and uh, he knows Murakami so well, and they work together on Murakami's translations, and they're good friends. And so if we can't resolve it, then I'll go, I'll, I'll make a short list of questions and ask Murakami, but it's a rel relatively short list. In this case, though, interestingly, I thought that the title would be Killing the Commendatore. Right. And Phil Gabriel thought it would be Killing Commendatore. So we put it to Murakami, and he said, Killing Commendatore. Okay. End of discussion, <laughs> right? Uh, when it came to chapter headings, uh, he was a real stickler in this case uh, to, uh, to, to ensure that the way that the, the, the phrase appears in the, in, in the uh, body of, the, of, of that chapter is the way that it appears at the head of the chapter as a, as a chapter title. Uh, there were a few cases where we couldn't quite do that, yeah. but uh, that was something he asked us. And, and, and we ran that past him and said, okay, well, we managed to get all these similar, except for these 
four or five that, that, that we couldn't quite match up. Is that okay? And then he would look and say yes or no. And uh, does he explain his decisions or is his word final and he doesn't have to? I wouldn't say that he has to explain his decision. Certainly with killing the commendatory versus killing commendatory, there was no explanation. Okay. He just didn't like that definite article. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And, you know, thinking back on it, um, I think commendatory in this case is not just that one character. Yes. It has a broader application that becomes clear as you read the novel. And therefore, uh, perhaps this generalizes it more than than if it were uh, uh, killing the commendatory, which would make it much more specific, that particular character. Uh, so uh, when uh, the book comes out, this is perhaps the moment for the translator to step into the spotlight, because uh, often translators are sort of slightly ignored when it comes to the razzmatazz of a book being released. Uh, are you happy with that? Do you, do you, are you happy with that? Do you not mind uh, not getting into the limelight too much? That's another good question. I think the role of the translator in Japanese culture is uh, has a higher profile, and, uh, and 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 translators are more celebrated than here. And so I have good friends like Moto who uh, uh, benefit from that. I guess I guess you could say, uh, but the pleasure of translation isn't really based on how much credit you're you're given for yeah. it. Um, and it's probably a mistake for a translator to take too much credit for the success of a book. Uh, I remember uh, an event in, in Japan when about 25 or 30 translators of Murakami from around the world um, were, were brought together by the Japan Foundation and, and we got to know each other and it was, it was a lot of fun and we talked about uh, you know, translating Murakami into our own respective languages. There were three Chinese uh, translators, three Russian translators, Korean translator who I got to know, um, uh, and translators from across Europe and you know, it was uh, Brazil, Vietnam, yeah. uh, it was fun. and instructive insofar as Murakami seemed to be doing very well in all those languages uh, translated by all those translators. I think the way he tells a story, the way he's able to connect to readers, and it's remarkable if you think what it would take to connect to readers from China and Korea. I mean, he's more of popular course, in yes. Asia than he is in, North, in, in, uh, in the West, right? Yes. So his global sales are, English does very well, but, but the Chinese does even better in, in numbers, and possibly Korea is, the, is the, the audience that responds most strongly to, to his work. Yes. Uh, and so uh, how is it that a single writer is able to capture uh, the attention and perhaps the hearts of uh, readers from so many different cultures and countries and languages. Yeah. You know, that is extraordinary. And uh, we may never see it again. And, and it has something to do with this character that you mentioned, that, 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 that isolated, uh, struggling character yeah. that we can all relate yeah. to, and something to do with the surrealism. Yes. In, in Asia, they like Norwegian wood better. In the West, they like the surreal stuff better. Yeah. But everybody likes it. Yes. The whole thing. I think the combination of the two may be uh, what really appeals to British readers. Hmm.
But uh, but uh, it's a very modest answer you've given there about how the translator shouldn't take too much credit. I mean, do you think um, uh, good translators are humble? They're putting the text first and really serving somebody else's good. Well, there's some egomaniacs e- e- among okay. the <laughs> translators, like everywhere else. But it is a it, it is a, a, a I wouldn't call it a profession, but a vocation that uh, allows one to be very introverted and, re- and reclusive. Yeah. You, you don't have to go out. There's some trans. I teach in a university. I address large numbers of students. You know, I've gotten fairly comfortable with that. Uh, and maybe I'm, 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 I'm kind of uh, oriented that way to begin with. But other translators I know, uh, they really feel comfortable you know, in a room by themselves, yeah. focused on the text. They don't like going out. They don't like the, the yeah. social aspect. And, and, they, and they can be brilliant. Uh, so... Sure. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's good that there are vocations like yes. that. It sounds like Murakami should write a novel about a translator next. That would <laughs> suit his kind of hero. Um, I think you and Philip Gabriel have served Killing Commentatory brilliantly. It's a wonderful translation and a great Thank read. You. Uh, Thank you, Ted. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Um, I really hope you enjoyed that. Killing Commendatore is out now. It's kind of beautiful. If you go to our Twitter, uh, Vintage Books, you're going to see some very, very nice pictures um, of how it looks. Not only is the cover full of classic Murakami circles and beautiful paint splatters, but underneath the cover, uh, there's a really special treat. So do check that out on our Twitter, at Vintage Books. Um, Let us know what you've thought of the novel, if you've read it already, uh, if you're going to get your hands on it this week. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, And until next time... (laughs) 